Good morning, Redeemer. This week's text is from the book of Galatians, chapter 5, beginning in verse 26, through Galatians, chapter 6, verse 10. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. One who has taught the word must share in all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that your word reveals you to be a God of amazing grace. And I pray that today your spirit would continue to fill us and to form us and to to show us that your grace is not just a reality that we are to believe in our minds, God, but it is a way of life. It's a practice that we are to observe as your people, God. And I pray that our lives and the way that we love one another would be able to exude not only a doctrine of grace, but a culture of grace. I pray that you would form us to be your people, filled and empowered by your Holy Spirit, to be able to display the glory of the King, Jesus Christ, and the glory and a preview of his coming kingdom. God, so we commit this time to you, and it is in Jesus' mighty name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. You may have your seat. As a minister, I've had the unique experience of several times being able to go out of the nation on short-term mission trips. And I love going on short-term missions because it's, it's not only a time to get out of the country, but it's a time to, to see the world, to be able to see other cultures. And in fact, I encourage you, if you are a Christian and you are able, at least once in your life, Try to get out of the nation. Go on a short-term mission trip um, just to let it bless you and to, to let your life bless others. And in fact, we're, um, as we are growing as a church, planning on providing a consistent schedule of regular mission trips just to provide our Redeemer family with opportunities to get out of the nation and to, to live on mission even in other cultures and other contexts. Um, but even though I love mission trips, my, my favorite thing, my most favorite thing, I guess I should say, that I like to do whenever I get out of the nation as I love to worship with other believers that are of a culture that are completely different from my own. I love being able to, you know, get down in a little African hut and sing songs that are songs of praise and worship to King Jesus. I love to be able to, to see that this Jesus that I worship, this Jesus that I know is also known by and worshiped by brothers and sisters that are in all corners of the globe and all kinds of different cultures. And in fact, I've had the privilege of being able to worship in Lincoln Cathedral in England and in Cata Bay in Malawi. I've been able to worship in Santa Ana, El Salvador and Managua, Nicaragua. And these experiences are profound because 
In those moments, you are able to quite clearly see that the way that we do things in our culture is not necessarily the normative standard across the world. And in fact, it's a beautiful experience because you get to realize that when you are a Christian, when you're a part of the people of God, if you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, you're not only saved into a great salvation, you have become part of a worldwide movement of something that is so much bigger than yourself and so much bigger than the culture that you belong to. And in fact, it's in those moments that you can kind of clearly see the unique aspects of Really, what makes our culture a little bit different? And, and sometimes that, that's actually a challenge to us because sometimes the, the way we do things might not be the best way. I'll give you one example. Um, I think one of the clearest ways that you can see the, the distinctives of our culture, say as opposed to rural Africa, is in the way that we view time. You see, in the Western world, in places like America or Great Britain or just places that are kind of of a more urbanized, industrialized, and even wealthier um, place of life, um, one of the things that's unique, that's a consistent feature of that type of society, is how busy we are. It's like, no matter what, we do not have enough time. You you can ask anybody how they're doing, and they're probably going to tell you that they're tired and they're busy. You know, and that's all of us. And we keep on thinking that we're about to get to that moment where it's not going to be that way, but we never really get there. And that's because our culture forms us to be a busy people. We're constantly looking for the next thing. We're constantly wanting to be more efficient. And we have this awkward tendency to not be able to stop and smell the roses and enjoy the present moment. And, and so how this affects church life is, um, is very clearly. So we're in the 11 o'clock service right now. By the time 12.15, 12.30 rolls around, um, you're going to be wanting that preacher to um, be able to make it snappy, you know. Um, I don't want to get in a situation where I'm waiting an hour for my steak at Outback, you know. Um, that, that gets a guy like me in trouble. I might even get angry emails if I were to preach that long. And um, we're, we're hurried. We're, we're constantly looking for the next thing because we're an efficient people. We're constantly going from one thing to another. And it's not necessarily the way that it should be, though. It's not necessarily the way that everybody else does it. If you go to rural Africa, you're going to have a very different experience. In fact, one of the things I would say is very consistent. If you worship in Africa and you go to a church service, you need to be prepared that that's going to be pretty much an all-day event. They take their time worshiping Jesus. They take their time singing songs and and discussing and teaching scripture and and spending time in fellowship with one another. They're they're not in a hurry at all. And while that might be annoying to a Westerner, there's also something really beautiful about it. There's something beautiful about being able to be fully vested in the present moment. We have the privilege at this church of being able to, to partner with a church planting movement in Kenya that's led by native Kenyans. And in fact, uh, Pastor Francis B., um, who's one of the leaders of that movement, has actually been able to be here at Redeemer several times. He's a great man. I love spending time with him. I can't wait to be able to go and actually visit Redeemer Christian Church in Eldoret, Kenya. So uh, one of my um, uh, things I got to check off my list because I, I want to see those guys and be able to worship Jesus with them. But Pastor Francis has a really interesting saying, and I think it's, it's quite illuminating. He says, you Americans, you have watches, but we Kenyans, we have time. And I think it's pretty unbelievably telling. And whenever we are able to kind of see our culture from another perspective, we're able to say, maybe, maybe this is not the way that it should be. Maybe we, in fact, actually need to make a few changes to be able to, to have a life more like it's created to be. And you see... 
Culture is not just something that's unique to different national groups. It's actually something that occurs anytime you bring people together in society. You're going to have a type of culture. And so even the church at large has a culture and the American church has a culture. In order to be able to figure out what this culture really is, we need to ask people on the outside. How do they perceive it? What would they say about our culture? What would they say about our values? And in 2007, um, uh, two young men, a guy named David Kinneman and a guy named uh, Gabe Lyons, actually did a, a fairly massive study about the millennial generation, that is people that were born after 1980, and how that generation perceived the culture of the church, how they perceived Christians. Because we might profess ourselves to believe certain things and to have a culture, but the way they perceive it might be a little bit different. And their results were sadly a little haunting. Um, This is what they said. The results of their study resulted in this. Um, Christians were perceived as, number one, hateful. That was the most common thing. Number two, judgmental. Number three, hypocritical. Number four, out of touch. Number five, over-political. And number six, inauthentic. Now that's disappointing, right? I mean, that's... That's not going to necessarily make you happy that that's how a lot of people on the outside of the church see us. But if we're honest and if we really actually care about our mission, our first response is not going to be to defend ourselves and say they're wrong and we're right. Our response is going to be, well, how then do we actually reflect and image a culture that that represents the gospel well. Because the thing is, is uh, Gabe Lyons and David Kinnaman, these guys are Christians. They didn't like the results of this either. And the, the reason they were particularly disturbed is because not only are these adjectives rather negative, but they're exactly the opposite of how Christians are called to be in the New Testament. And, and so here's the, the scary thing that we have to confront is we can profess to have a culture of love, that unintentionally foster a culture of hate. We can profess to have a culture of grace, but unintentionally foster in an environment that lends itself toward judgment. And you see, I I think that's where we have to look at our text today. Because you see, we have been in the course of the spring exploring and going through a sermon series called By Grace Alone. And we're exploring... This majestic idea of the grace of God. And we're exploring it through the New Testament book of Galatians. Now Galatians is a letter. It's written to a group of churches by a man named Paul. And and this letter is, is perhaps one of the most beautiful defense and exposition of the doctrine of grace. Which is Christianity's most radical idea. It's an idea that, that changes lives. It's an idea that has changed history. And Paul has moved, as we've moved towards the end of the book, talking more so about how to practice grace instead of what the doctrine of grace is. He's already finished expositing the nuances of what grace is and the doctrine of grace. Now he's saying, what does it look like for a people to practice grace? And this is something that we need to know. It's something that we need to grapple with and lay a hold of because it is simply not enough to believe grace. If you are a Christian, if you are a part of the people of God, we need to recognize that we are called not only to believe in grace, but to be able to project and to foster a culture of grace. And that's where we're going to get a lot of help today. This is what Pastor Raymond Ortland, who is a pastor in Nashville, Tennessee, says of how important this is. He says, gospel doctrine without gospel culture nullifies the grace of God. Gospel doctrine, however pure, cannot stand alone. Faithfulness to the gospel 
is a matter of both profession and conduct. We are either living proof of the grace of God or we are a living denial of the grace of God. But we are never neutral. And pointing to our orthodox doctrinal statements, wonderful as they are, is no refuge. Faithfulness is also a matter of pressing the grace revealed in our doctrine into our every relationship all the time. We're called to build a culture of grace. And our text today, I think, engages that very notion of actually how to do this. Now, when you initially read this, it might just kind of sound like a random list of good advice and tips that Paul is giving us on how to live the Christian life. But when you put it in context with the rest of the book, what he is describing is what a church community looks like when they not only believe grace, but they practice it. When they have habits that are formed and shaped by the Holy Spirit to be able to exude and radiate an environment of the grace of God. And remember, we are kind of coming out of a passage of Scripture that just finished telling us that we need to be a Spirit-led people that walk with the Holy Spirit. That if we have the new life given to us by salvation, by the Holy Spirit, we need to walk in step with the Holy Spirit to follow Him, to let Him lead us. And if we're going to do that, the Spirit is going to form us to be a, a people that practice habits of grace so that we can build a culture of grace. And there are at least six habits that Paul engages here that we need to be able to understand. Number one is humble love. Number two, gentle confrontation. Number three, honest confession. Number four, sacrificial service. Number five, radical generosity. And number six, diligent holiness and hope. Humble love, gentle confrontation, honest confession, sacrificial service, radical generosity, and diligent holiness and hope. Let's, let's take the first one. Humble love. The, the, the rhythm, the habit of humble love. Let's look at the, the last few verses of chapter 5. Verse 25 begins by saying, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Verse 26, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now those two verses are linked. That first verse is the last verse that, we, the verse that we examined last week, where we talked about that if you are a Christian, you're one who has been energized by the new life of God in the Holy Spirit. And if that Holy Spirit is living within you, God is calling you to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, to be led by the Holy Spirit. Now, how are you going to know if you're going to do that? What are the evidences of that going to look like? Look at the next verse. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Isn't that astonishing? That in this context, the the primary social communal evidence of being led by the Spirit and walking by the Spirit is how we love one another with humility. It's how we treat one another in our relationships. This is what the, the commentator John Stott says about this. He says, The first and great evidence of our walking by the Spirit or being filled with the Holy Spirit is not some private mystical experience of our own, but our practical relationships of love with other people. Now, of course, if you're led by the Spirit, you're walking with the Spirit, you're going to have a personal experience. You're you're going to personally know Jesus and walk with Him and be led by Him. But it cannot stop there. It has to be evidenced by the way that you love people. And, And the opposite of this is being conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The opposite of a culture of humble love is a culture of comparison. A culture where we compete with one another. A culture where we gossip about one another. A culture of humble love is a a culture of forgiving one another. Walking in grace. Walking in gratitude. 
of being able to, to serve one another and, and to truly love one another, of not viewing our relationships as a stage where we have to perform for people so that we can get their approval, but rather as an opportunity to humbly serve and love one another. It's not just a good idea. It's not just a way that healthy relationships look. What the Bible is saying here is this is how you actually image the grace of God to a world that needs to see the hope of what it looks like to see a people formed by the grace of God. This is unbelievably important. I believe with all of my heart, one of the most important and crucial decisions that you will ever make in your life is who you choose to surround yourself with. Who are you relating with? Who are the most important relationships in your life and how are they forming your heart? Are they forming your heart in such a way that, man, you just get around one another and you feel like you have to compete. You feel like you have to compare you feel like, you know what, um, my salary is not enough. I need, I need to climb the corporate ladder so that I can make more, so that I can have a bigger house. Or maybe my, my body image isn't the way that I want it to be. I, I got to chase this, I got to chase that, and it's not enough. And you're, you're forming your heart to constantly associate your value with really things of this world. One of the most important things we can do is to find a community and to help actively cultivate a community where we can edify one another where we can honor God, where we can actually chase Jesus together in such a way that not only helps us be a transformed people, but it helps shine forth the glory of Jesus to a world that needs to see Jesus. And we do this not only by believing in a God who is love, we do this by being a people who exude and who exhibit a God who is love through our humble love. This is point number two, is gentle confrontation. Look at the first verse of chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And what Paul just said here is, okay, this whole thing about Christian community, you need to go ahead and expect that people are going to blow it. People are going to mess up. You will be sinned against. You will be disappointed from time to time. Um, People aren't going to be perfect in their their relationships with you. And so, with that in mind, here's how you need to respond. You need to respond by being able to confront them in love and being able to say, this is sin. And and here is what repentance looks like. To be able to restore them redemptively with a spirit of gentleness. Now, I'll tell you what the opposite of this is. And the opposite is what we're most tempted to do all the time. We can either, when someone sins against us, we can respond in several ways. We can respond kind of passive-aggressive. And I think this is probably the majority of us. Um, when we respond passive-aggressively to sin against us, what it looks like is we just check out of the relationship. We withdraw. That person's not going to know why we're upset. That person's not going to know why we withdrew. But we're just going to withdraw. And then we'll probably, on the side, self-righteously gossip about that person a little bit. And we're going to feel really justified when we do it because that person's in the wrong. That person legitimately sinned. But rather than going to that person, we're going to make ourselves feel better by confessing their sin for them. It's not the best way to form your heart or to exude in a relationship that shows that you believe in the grace of God. You might have like a little bit more of an active, aggressive approach, and you might just be prone to just ripping someone's head off. You have no problem telling someone off, telling them how it is, and making them feel condemned. And what the Bible shows us is both of those are sinful. Both of those are immature. But if you're spiritual, if, you're, if you are mature, what you need to be able to realize is, yes, you're going to be in community with people. And any time you're in any relationship of any depth, you're going to have conflict. And you're going to have moments when that person sins against you. But you need to realize 
that that person is made in the image and likeness of God. And if you are saved by grace, and that other person is a Christian, they are also saved by grace. So you need to confront them with gentleness. You need to be able to seek to redeem and to restore them. Now, gentle confrontation. Both of those words are rather important, don't you think? Because some of us can be gentle, but we don't confront. And some of us can confront, and we're not gentle. You really need both to get the job done. But you can confront. You can be able to call sin, sin, in a way that is gentle. In a way that is kind. In a way that the person that you are confronting knows that your motivation is one of love and restoration. And in fact, that person needs to understand that you love them. Otherwise, you're probably just going to get in a shouting match. But if you fail to confront, I would say you're probably failing to love that person. Now, this assumes, again, we're talking about inside the Christian community. We don't need to be the moral police that go out to the rest of the world and tell everybody else how unbiblical their lives are. Because you know what? If you don't believe in the resurrected Jesus Christ, if you do not believe that he is Lord, you're probably not going to care about a biblical ethic. But how we can image that ethic is very powerful. We are called to be a people that reflect that and show that the kingdom of God is a better way. And how we do that is by being able to confront one another with the heart to restore one another. But another really important thing for this to be able to work well is if you're going to confront someone, you need to be a person that is humble enough to be able to willingly receive confrontation. I oftentimes, I'm doing a lot of premarital counseling right now. And one of the things I say over and over again to couples that I counsel is you need to be able to create an environment in your marriage where you're approachable and where your spouse can confront you if they need to confront you. And I would say one of the most important skills that a a healthy marriage can learn is how to confront one another in a gentle way. How we can confront one another in a way that promotes restoration and not a severing of the relationship, but rather a deeper intimacy, a deeper connection. And, And if you're able to confront one another in that way, you're going to be able to attain that. And it shows the world, wow, these people care about me, that we, we actually care to walk in truth, that, that someone loves me enough to be able to show me, hey, you know what, David, you're not walking in step with the gospel right now. There's a better way. And, and I, I think that you, you need to be able to repent of this and to be able to embrace holiness. That, that's a gift. That is something that's beautiful, and it's something that's very uncommon in a world that rejects any type of criticism as something that is an automatic rejection and, and, and fosters really a sense of isolation in our very, very individualized world. But what if you're the person that's in sin? What if you're the person that has blown it? That leads us to the third point, which is honest confession. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he will deceive himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. See, the Bible is a really honest book, and I love that. And sometimes the Bible is so honest that it causes us to come face-to-face with truths that we are not necessarily comfortable with. And here's what the Bible just said about you. Is you have sin, you have junk, you have messes, you have a burden. But the good news is you do not have to carry it alone. You can try to. You can try to justify yourself. But we are called to bear one another's burden. We are called to fulfill the law, the love of Christ by serving one another, by lifting those burdens off of one another. And that has to happen in the context of honest, open, sincere confession. Now, that's scary for us. 
um, especially us West Texans, we're so fiercely independent um, that we don't really like to show any type of weakness. You know, we like to think that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, which is actually literally impossible. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Gravity doesn't work that way. But we live like it does. We, we convince ourselves that we're so tough and self-sufficient that if we just kind of cover our, our, uh, our lives and our mess with a veneer of niceness that no one will know. And the truth is, is we, we need to be delivered um, through this, this spirit-anointed means of confession. And here's the really, really good news, is if you are a Christian, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrected Lord that bore all of your sin, then guess what? You no longer have to be defined by your sin or your shame. You no longer have to worry about people accepting you because God Almighty, the Holy God, who is the definition of purity and goodness, has accepted you in Christ. If you allow that reality to wash over you, that means that there is no sin that you could confess that isn't already covered by the blood of Jesus. If we rest in that, if we rest in the fact that that God has loved us in our worst moment, we can begin to allow our hearts to hope that maybe his family can love us in our worst moment. And people of God, that's our call. We are called to love one another when it's not easy and actually when it's quite messy. And we are called to create an environment of safety and patience that is saturated in the grace of God. But it takes boldness. It takes boldness to be able to to find someone that you trust, a Christian, and be able to say, you know what, I'm struggling with this, and I need help. You know what the Word of God says? The Word of God says in First John that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Now, that's a shocking truth to know that if we take something out of the darkness and put it into the light, that the light overwhelms the power of darkness, that it overwhelms the power of sin. But the means, the, the way that we bring things into light is by confessing our sins. We walk in true fellowship. We walk in true accountability with one another. And it's through that God-anointed means that we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Now, you've been forgiven. But a lot of times, our, we are addicted to patterns of behavior and thinking that are sinful because we fail to be able to utilize the means that God has given us of confession. To be able to be honest with one another and say, you know what? I need you to pray for me. I need you to help me. This is what I'm going through. This is a sin that I need to confess. Remind me again of the gospel of grace. Wash me with that. Pray for me. See, we're, we're not called to be Lone Ranger Christians. We're in this together. And that's a power of community that I believe is one of the most unbelievably powerful declarations of the gospel of grace. Is whenever we're honest enough to be able to say that we're not perfect, that we don't have it all together, but that we have a God who is greater than our sin. Gosh, that's such good news. Uh, one of the ways that we do this here at Redeemer is we have community groups that, that meet throughout the week. We study the word together. We care for one another. And, and we encourage our community groups to observe an, another rhythm that we call discipleship groups. Now, discipleship groups are kind of smaller groups within the community group that meet apart and, and they apply scripture to one another. They openly confess sin to one another and they pray for one another. And that rhythm, that habit, it is a 
habit that not only forms us and changes us, it helps create our relationships to be a culture that is defined by the grace of God. You're going to have a hard time walking in the light. You're going to have a hard time overcoming sin if you do not have people that you can openly and honestly confess your sin to. And I encourage you, be one that not only longs for that, but that actually helps create that. It's not something magical. It's not something that you have to be able to contrive. All we've got to do is confess sin to one another and pray for one another and, and get into a community that's, that's going to be the defined, that's going to be the, the rules, that we create an environment of safety, patience, and time that is saturated in the gospel of grace. Point number four is this, sacrificial service. The very last verse says this, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those that are of the household of faith. This is, this is an idea, this is a culture of sacrificial service. That our default position is not only to look out for number one, but especially within the context of our faith family that we look for needs that other people have. And that we seek to be the agent that proactively meets those needs. Now, this mentality of sacrificial service certainly needs to extend beyond the house of God. We need to have a, a, cult, a church culture that actually seeks to serve our community at large. But I believe while it doesn't stop in the church, it must start in the church. That our love for our city is ultimately an overflow of our love for one another. That we love one another in an extraordinary way. That means when someone, someone's going through pain and suffering, when someone's going through trial, you meet with them, you encourage them, you buy their cup of coffee, and you, you talk with them, you pray for them, you check up on them. That means that we help each other build fences when we need fences built. This means that we help babysit when a mom and dad need to be able to check out and have a moment of sanity. This means that we, we give elderly people rides to the hospital whenever they, they need to go and to, to visit and love them and tell them that they, they are a part of our family. To be able to look for proactive ways that we serve one another in a way that is sacrificial, in a way that costs us something. Because you know what? If you are a Christian, you signed up for this. Because you signed up to be like Christ. A Christian, all that word means is a little Christ. One who is like Christ. You know who Christ is? He is a transcendent, majestic God. Beyond eternity, beyond infinity, beyond our capacity to be able to put into language or comprehension. And that great God came down into our broken world. He became a man. He became a servant who sought to serve at great sacrifice to himself, and we are to follow in his footsteps and to image his character by having a culture of grace around us. And you know what? This happens all the time, and there are opportunities we have in this church where you can serve one another. There are actually several amazing, precious people that are right now, as I speak, currently in our early childhood area, that are changing diapers, they're preparing snacks, they're teaching lessons, they are singing songs to many children of parents who are in this room. You know why they do that? They do it as, a, as an example of sacrificial servant, as service to you. To be able to have a place where moms and dads can come into worship without distraction. To be able to focus their hearts on Jesus. And, and it's, a, it's a beautiful opportunity. It's a beautiful opportunity to do that. And you know what? That's an opportunity for you to be able to serve. If you want to do that, we need more volunteers because you know what? This is a church that is being fruitful and multiplying. We're knocking it out of the park on that commandment. We're doing a great job. 
And we need people to rise to the occasion, to sacrificially serve one another. It's, it's more than just meeting a need that we have. It's a way that we promote and image a culture of grace. Number five is this, radical generosity. Look at verse six. One who has taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, that's a little awkward for me to teach on, right? Um, it seems a little self-serving to be able to, um, to say that, but I, I think that this goes beyond just the initial meeting. Now, there is an initial meeting that I think we need to acknowledge, which is that whenever a, a church financially gives, you're able to not only provide for a, a provision for a ministry staff, leadership, and the ability to turn lights on, um, you're able to really resource the mission of God to go forward. Through our generosity, um, we are able to resource this church to, to reach our city and to reach far beyond this city. And it's a beautiful thing. And, and we always say this every single week that the reason we give is to not get something from God. The reason we give is because God has given Jesus to us. That he has loved us with a costly, generous love. Therefore, we are called to be a generous people. And that's, that's our call. We are, we are imaging that. And, and I think that radical generosity definitely needs to um, include the local church, but I think it needs to go beyond that. I, I think our sacrifice, our, our joy, our consistent giving needs to really be a way of life. To be a people that are known for generosity. To be a people that when we see need... And when we are led by God to be able to meet that need, that we respond obediently and courageously. And I think that really applies to Americans. Because you know what? If you are a person, if you're a man or a woman or child, and you have your needs met, if you're not hungry, if you have access to clean water, you need to realize something. You're in the minority of the entire world. The majority of the world doesn't have those basic things. And I think if we have that provision, we need to respond to that. We need to realize that we need to resource the kingdom of God to be able to go forward. That we need to be able to resource relief organizations. That we need to resource church plants and international missions and even local charities to be able to, to, be able to create and, and be able to provide needs to people that need them. That, that's our call. We are called to rise to the occasion that way and be a people of radical generosity. And I love our church. Uh, our elders are, are generous men that lead our church in a generous direction. We're not that large of a church, and um, because of our size demographics, we don't necessarily have an extraordinarily huge budget. But I tell you this, 15% of everything that comes in goes out. We're a church that's committed to planting churches. We're a church that's committing to loving our city and meeting needs in our city. We're, we're a church that is committed to really not just being about this little kingdom, but the kingdom of God. Because we want to be a people of radical generosity. And if you look at point number six, this is the final, um, kind of final habit of what it means to, to create a culture of grace. This is a, the habit of diligent holiness and hope. Now look at verses 7 through 9 of chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But if one sows to the Spirit... From the Spirit, he will reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And the idea here is a very simple metaphor. It's a metaphor of agriculture. It's a metaphor of if you plant a seed, you're going to get a similar result of what produced that seed. And so if you want an apple, you need to be able to plant an apple seed. And so you'll get an apple tree that will produce apples. If you're going to 
want a pear, you need to be able to plant a, a, a pear seed that's going to grow into a pear tree that will produce pears. That it's, it's a very obvious concept, but it's something that we miss when we, we associate it with a spiritual level. This is why um, the Word of God says, do not be deceived. Anytime Scripture says that, you need to pay attention to it, by the way. That means, hey, by the way, Scripture is saying that this is something that's easy to miss. This is something that's easy to think, no, nah, it doesn't really work out that way. Maybe it's a different way. God is not mocked. That, that word, muktorizo, um, literally means to stick your nose up at God. And what it says is, you need to, if you want a, a spiritual harvest of spiritual eternal life, you need to sow to the Spirit. But if you realize, if, you, if you're going to sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. Now, that might sound a little confusing. And so I want to give you some quotes that I think clarify this. This is what Tim Chester says in his book, You Can Change. He said, we sow to the flesh whenever we do something that strengthens or provokes our sinful desires. We sow to the spirit whenever we strengthen our spirit-inspired desire for holiness. John Stott, a commentator, kind of follows the same line of thought. He says this. He says, how can we expect to reap the fruit of the spirit if we do not sow in the field of the spirit? The old adage is true. Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Holiness is a harvest. Whether we reap it or not depends almost entirely on what and where we sow. So this should cause you um, to really do an audit of your habits. What the Bible just said is your habits are determining whether or not you're becoming an increasingly more spiritual or a more fleshly person. A person that's more inclined toward holiness or a person that's more inclined to indulging and, and, and sinful behavior. Because you see, you can, you can actually be a Christian, you can believe in Jesus Christ, but you can work against that new nature and that new life by consistently sowing your life with bad habits that provoke your flesh, that provoke wrong desires. And, and a lot of times, because we're Americans and because we're efficient and we want everything to happen yesterday, we, we just expect God to zap us into a state of holiness. You know, we want, we want like a lightning bolt that will all of a sudden make us a saint. And... We don't realize that, that God actually calls us to partner with him, to sow to our spirit, so that God, through that means of, of spiritual sowing, can reap within us a harvest of holiness. So you might really be at a place in your life, man, I want to get serious about God. You know, I, I want to turn my life around. I want to be someone that is holy and righteous, and I want to walk in deep communion with God. But if you're going on a weekly Netflix binge, that's probably not going to help it. You know, it's just, it's not going to do you well if you're just, you know, surfing the web for four hours trying to figure out what you want to watch to entertain yourself, to sedate yourself. You're going to have a hard time having a spiritual harvest if you ignore the means of grace that God gives us to actually grow in him. When I use that term means of grace, all that is is, Things that the Bible shows us are, are avenues through which the Spirit of God forms us and shapes us and changes us. Things like prayer, communing with God. Things like reading Scripture and meditating on the words of Scripture. Things like coming to cor corporate worship and singing songs and partaking in Holy Communion. Those are avenues through which the Spirit of God sows holiness into our life. And if we endure, if we are diligent we will reap a, a, an entire harvest of holiness, but it is something that God wants to partner with us in. 
He wants us to be diligent. He wants us to pursue holiness. And he wants to do it with a sense of hope so that we can be a people that know that God's going to bring about hope in our lives. But here's the thing. When I said all of that point, when I said all of that stuff about habits, almost all of us, our initial inclination is to think of that entirely in terms of the individual. Isn't it? But this book wasn't written to an individual. It was written to a church. We are called to pursue holiness. We are called to engage in spiritual means of grace and habits that lead us towards holiness. And we're called to do that in an diligent way that's full of hope. But we are called to do that together. We're called to do that together. And this is why we're so unbelievably emphatic on this whole idea of community. And community groups. If, if we want to be a people that not only gathers on Sunday, but that we scatter into our city. That we scatter into neighborhoods. In such a way that we're, we're meeting together. We're studying scripture together. We're caring for one another. We're discipling one another. We're serving and reaching out to our neighbors and our friends and our family. On mission together in community. Because you know what? When you read the New Testament, there is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. We are called to pursue holiness. We are called to pursue hope together as a community. And when you have a community of people that are doing that together, it images, it creates a culture of grace that the world needs to see. The world needs to see. And, and here's the interesting thing. As I was reading this, kind of in lieu of this research that Gabe Lyons and David Kinneman created in their book, Unchristian, I noticed something. That everything that the Paul just described in Galatians is the exact opposite of that perceived culture. It's the exact opposite of how millennial Christians tend to view at, at the church. And so Christians are called to be a people known for their humble love, not hate. Christians are called to be a people of gentle confrontation, not harsh judgment. Instead of hypocrisy, we should be known for honest confession. Instead of being seen as out of touch, we should be known for sacrificial service. Instead of people that are seen as obsessed with political power and self-interest, we should inspire fellow citizens by radical generosity and self-giving. And instead of appearing inauthentic, we should be a people known for our diligent pursuit of holiness and hope. It's our call. But another word for all of this, another word for a culture of grace is simply the church. It's who we're called to be. So how are we going to apply this? I want to give you some questions that I encourage you to discuss in the context of your marriage, your family, your community group, your friendships. How has God challenged you to be a part of creating a culture of grace? Question number one is, how has God challenged you to help foster a culture of grace in your marriage and in your family? Okay, that's the basic unit of Christian community is, is a Christian marriage or a Christian family. How are you going to be an active agent in creating and fostering a culture of grace? Maybe you need to really work on that habit of gentle confrontation with your spouse. Maybe you need to be one that repents of the fact that, you know what, you're not easily confronted. And you need to be able to say, you know what, I'm sorry that I'm unapproachable. And I want you to be able to confront me. Maybe um, parents with your kids, you need to be able to foster a culture of grace in your family by, first of all, owning up to the fact when you sin. I think it's actually really powerful for parents to confess to their children when they've sinned against them. I think that's how we teach our kids grace. 
What are ways that maybe, maybe you need to be able to relate with your parents or your siblings in a different way that, that shows them grace, that you treat them with humble love? What are the ways that you can foster a culture of grace in your family and in your marriage? Point number two or question number two is how is God challenging you to help foster a culture of grace in your friendships or your community group? So if you're in a community group or you have Christian friends, what ways, specifically how, practically how, can you be an agent that helps create a culture of grace in those friendships? Of God-honoring, edifying conversation that pushes you closer to Jesus. How, how can you help foster an environment of humble love with the people that are around you that, that is against competition, that is against comparison, that is against constantly trying to engage in a rat race with one another? That's against gossip. How can you learn to gently shut those things down and say, we're, we're going to be about Jesus and we're going to pursue Jesus together? Number three is how is God challenging you to help foster a culture of grace in your church? Now, this is something that I've noticed kind of in recent years is I think there's kind of an increasing self-awareness of Christians in this nation um, where we have acknowledged that we've messed it up a little bit. That the way that we are, the way that we're perceived is not the way that it should be. And the irony of this is that can oftentimes lead evangelicals to a place of really kind of just hating on the church and say, man, the church is so messed up. Yeah, it's hypocritical and it's hateful and judgmental. But here's the thing. If you're saying that, and if you're a Christian, you need to realize you are the church. That's you, okay? So rather than just kind of bashing it and kind of treating it as this amorphous thing that gets it all wrong, we need to view ourselves as agents of change. How is God calling you in your individual small way, if you're a Christian, to help foster an environment and a culture of grace in this church? How's God calling you to do that? Man, I, I just I long for the day that, that people can come in here and, and be able to say, man, the, the thing I felt just an overwhelming presence of was just the grace of God. Because you know what? Um, not everybody's going to be able to encounter God in a direct personal way the first time they set foot in the church. But you know what? They can encounter you. And through you, they can encounter the love of God. They can encounter a culture of grace. Now, it's interesting as we describe that culture of grace. Humble love. Gentle confrontation. Being loved in such a way that we can be honest in our confession. To serve one another. Be generous. To pursue holiness. To pursue hope. We're not just describing an environment. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we're describing a person. Because you see, a culture of grace is simply an overflow of the character of Christ. Christ Jesus, who humbled himself to love us even to the point of death on a cross. He confronts our sin because he loves us. He accepts us in our weakness, enabling us to confess. He sacrificially serves us. He has displayed generosity to us. And he is the source, the very fountain of our holiness and hope. See, he comes to offer a different culture than the world has to offer. More specifically, he comes to offer us a kingdom. The culture of grace is nothing more than the kingdom of God. It's, it's an environment where King Jesus is king. See, Jesus is, is so different than the harshness and the weight, the heaviness of the world around us. Jesus displays his power not by wearing a glorious crown, but by enduring a gruesome cross. He displays his worth, not by making much of himself and wielding a, a soldier's sword, but by taking a servant's towel and serving us. This is a, a king. He is a glorious king. 
and His kingdom is glorious. And how we are to be able to image that love to one another, how we are to image that love to the world, first begins when we directly experience and encounter that extraordinary love ourselves. We have to be a people that are amazed and saturated by the love of God. So allow yourself to rediscover that. Allow that love to yet have been become uncommon to you. And if you are not yet a Christian and you have never experienced the love of Christ, I invite you. His offer is a free offer. All you have to do is believe in him, trust in him, that Jesus Christ is, is the one who died for you. That Jesus Christ is the one who raised from the dead for you. That Jesus Christ is alive, that he is Lord, that he is coming again. When you place your hope in that, he can give you new life. And you can begin that journey today. And I invite you, begin that journey today. We're going to have a moment later in the service where we have opportunity for all kinds of prayer ministry. And if you need to begin that journey today, I want you to come forward to confess, to begin that journey of following Jesus today. Don't leave if you need to begin that journey today. For all of us, um, let's be people that are committed to rising to the occasion, to being able to, to radiate a culture of grace. See, whenever we radiate the culture of grace through our life, we are giving the world a preview of the kingdom of God, of the kingdom of grace. So, Redeemer, let's rise to the occasion. Let's be a people that commit to be a spirit-filled people, pursuing Jesus, chasing Jesus, believing in grace, but more than that, practicing grace. Displaying grace, imaging grace to our world with our lives and our love. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your amazing grace. I pray that as we continue in worship, that that, that notion of your grace would be formed in our hearts to be such a deep reality that it would... It would go beyond just mere mental assent, that it would be something that we, we practice with our lives, that we exude with our very lives. God, and as we come before your table in Holy Communion, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would make the reality of grace so real to us that we would freely confess our sin as we examine ourselves, and that more than that, that we would rest in the finished work of the cross. God, so we, we worship you. We're grateful for grace, and we pray that we would be a people formed and shaped by that grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit. It's for Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.